Hey y'all, welcome to another episode of Mount Murders. We are back, and uh, we had our last episode, um, a little different. I mean, it was a murder episode, but about a mass shooting, if you will. Yes, it was a little different, but murder's all the same. Yeah, exactly. So we're back with another mountain murder, and this time we're going to travel back in time a little bit. Uh, Going back to 1981. So I was about a year old. I was three. Oh, well, there you go. So we're alive. But uh, 1981, you know, things were a little different then. There was, uh, of course, um, not as many folks in the area. Western North Carolina is still a bit more rural at that time. Um, yeah. You know, we didn't have all the technology, DNA testing, all of the, uh, you know, I guess, scientific things that we have now. Things are very different. Yeah, so definitely a different time, and um, this is a case uh, that involves uh, rape and murder of a teenage girl. We still had evil in the area. Yep, still got the evil. It's always been here. So November 10th, 1981, a 17-year-old girl, Jackie Lee, she lived with her two sisters and her mother in Brevard, just a beautiful, quaint little mountain town. And I imagine Brevard, of course now Brevard, there's Brevard College, and you got a couple of the breweries and things over there, but... I imagine Brevard, 1981, probably a little less populated. Yes. Probably not as many things there. Yeah, and probably more uh, manufacturer-based maybe then. Yeah. Yes. Well, actually, Jackie Lee's mother worked at a local paper mill yes. on the midnight to 8 a.m. shift. So on this particular afternoon, November 10th, 1981, it seemed like a pretty standard day. Um, of course, you know, when you think about it, nobody really goes into the day thinking, this is going to be my last day. No. So I guess every day seems pretty standard until you become the victim of a violent crime, right? Right. So Jackie Lee arrived home from school around 3.15. She changed into her workout gear, if you will, and went jogging. So pretty typical, I think, for most of us. Get home, change clothes, maybe go for a jog, go for a run. Returned home, she watched some TV with her mom till about 7.30, and then she dropped her mom off at a restaurant. And Mrs. Lee returned home about 10.45, and uh, she was a little concerned because when she got home, she said that her car parked in the front of the house, um, the door was ajar on the car, and that her daughter's purse was lying on the ground. And then the front door of her house was open, the inside lights were on, um, so she was, you know, a little worried. This is a school night. Up until now, her daughter's been pretty responsible. I mean, mom works midnight to eight. She's got to trust that her daughters are going to be home and, you know, doing the right thing, taking care of themselves, self-sufficient, going to bed. So, uh, you know, when, when mom comes home, car doors open, purse on the ground, doors open, lights on in the house. Of course, she's going to freak out a little bit. Yeah, all that together. Any one of those might not be, you know, the end of the world, but all that at once, 
most of us parents are going to be concerned. Be freaked out. Especially when your daughter doesn't have any kind of history of running away or staying out late or sneaking out of the house or, you know, she's not like a troubled kid, if you will. Yeah. Doesn't get into trouble. She probably much. helps with the two sisters a lot. Follows I'm sure. the rules. I mean, good girl. So mom's pretty concerned, but, uh, you know, mom works in manufacturing. Most plants are pretty strict about you got to be there on time. Oh, yeah. So while this is happening, you know, the, the clock is ticking and mom knows she has to get to work. And so single mom supporting three girls, you know, she knows she's got to get to work. So she calls two of Jackie's friends and says, hey, this is what's happened. Can you guys come over? Um, see if she shows back up. See if you can find out anything. Call around. You know, can you help me out? So Jackie's friends come over, start to look for her. So Mrs. Lee reports to work about 11.55 p.m. And about five minutes later, she gets a telephone message from one of the friends saying that Jackie's keys had been found near the front porch of the house. So Mrs. Lee knows something's up. Keys near the porch, daughter missing. The situation is growing, you know, grimmer by the minute. Her car's there. Her purse is there. A young woman, you know, probably going to have her purse with her. Right. Even if she leaves with other people. So, obviously, mom, very concerned, immediately leaves work, returns home, calls the police. And discovered that her daughter's jogging pants were on the floor of the bathroom. And she noted that there was a white gold watch and a topaz ring that were missing from the house. Because at this point, I guess maybe she's thinking somebody broke in, robbed us, starts looking through the house, and those were really the only two items that were missing. So daughter didn't, like, take, you know, it wasn't like the daughter ran away and took a bunch of stuff and, you know, ran. I mean, right. so these were the only things missing. You know, I'm sure as a parent, all these things are running through your mind. I can only imagine. So Mrs. Lee provided the officer's drawings of the items that were missing. And, of course, the police began searching for Jackie. So, between 3 and 4 a.m., they end up finding a necklace belonging to Jackie behind the house. And they also find some coins and bloody leaves near a picnic table in the Lee's backyard. Oh, that's not good. So, this is definitely turning into a bad situation. Quickly. Quickly. So, you know, they're still searching throughout the the night, early morning hours into the day. And uh, November 11th. So this is like, what, less than 24 hours since she's gone missing. Um, About 5.30 p.m., a neighbor discovered Jackie Lee's body in a nearby field. So when they find her, her face has been badly bruised. She had scratches, gunshot wound in her chest, and there was a fence post about four feet long that had blood stains on one end that was found near the body. Well, that's crazy. Well, we'll get into... um, a little bit of the autopsy report just to to let you know how uh, badly this poor girl was beaten, tormented. I mean, this is just really sad. So there was an autopsy performed um, on November the 12th. So, you know, pretty much the day after they find her. Um, She had um, a lot of injuries to her head. She had a fractured skull, a badly fractured skull, she had a bruised right cheek. She had scrapes on the chin. She had tiny dot hemorrhages on both sides of the head, lacerations on the lip, a chipped front tooth. Um, she had some bruising on her right cheek that extended five inches. I mean, that's pretty significant. That's your whole face. Yeah. I mean, it really I is. I mean, that's the whole side of your face. 
Well, a doctor um, that performed the autopsy testified later at the trial saying that these injuries could have been inflicted by a hand, um, but that the bruising to the right cheek had to be caused by several blows, like to get that kind of significant five inches of bruising on the face. I mean, that had to be someone really going to town on this poor girl. That's horrible. Hitting her. Yeah. There was blood on the surface of the brain. She had a tear in the cerebellum. Um, she had small hemorrhages on the brain surface. Um, a blunt object, probably the fence post that was found near the body, caused that skull fracture. She had scratches and bruises um, around her neck. Um, and uh, I guess the injuries to the neck looked like she had possibly been strangled by a belt with grommets because there were some perforations. So, so it left like a pattern on her neck. Yeah, of the belt. Yeah, and then of course she was alive when she was shot in the chest. So this poor girl is strangled. She's beaten. She's shot. Right. Well, the doctor also found she had some superficial tears um, in the vulva area, by the anus, sperm found inside, and outside of her vagina. Um, and that those injuries that she had were very consistent with um, rape. And she had that injury to the back of the head. She had this gunshot wound and strangulation, which are all potentially fatal. So the doctor really had a difficult time during autopsy pinpointing exactly what the cause of death was. That's insane. Because she was basically, you know, beaten, strangled, shot. I just don't see how someone could do that. And, of course, this is 1981, so um, science is a little behind back then, so they didn't really have a way to, I guess, determine the exact cause of death. And raped. Brutally raped. And brutally raped. So this is when, um, eventually, uh, they they find a suspect. Uh, he comes into play. His name is Stanley Sanders. Lawman is still checking out leads tonight concerning the murder of a Brevard teenager. Police arrested a suspect in connection with Jackie Lee's murder. 29-year-old Stanley Sanders is at the Buncombe County Jail tonight, awaiting an appearance before a circuit judge on Tuesday. But a motive for the killing has been uncovered. Lawmen are now saying larceny may have been the cause. Police searched the home of Sanders' mother and found some jewelry belonging to the Lee household. Lawmen speculate Sanders may have surprised his victim while in the process of robbing their home. He is charged with uh, the murder of Jackie Lee. Those words came from Sheriff Milford Hubbard early this morning. This man, 29-year-old Stanley Sanders, was arrested at his home yesterday evening, and law officers now say he is charged with the rape and murder of Miss Lee, as well as breaking and entering. The arrest comes after an intensive three-week investigation by the Transylvania County Sheriff's Department, the Bavard Police Department, and the State Bureau of Investigation. Chief Investigator Hubert Brown says the motive for the murder of 17-year-old Jackie Lee was rape. Brown says that Miss Lee did not know Sanders, but that he knew her through unknown contacts. Sanders apparently waited for Miss Lee at her home, allegedly raped her, beat her to death with a fence post, and then shot her. Authorities say they have the gun and a large amount of stolen property in custody. Sanders has also been linked to another rape crime in Brevard and various burglaries. Chief Investigator Brown says that an undercover informant with the Sheriff's Department helped to break open the case. 
Sanders was taken from Bavard to the Buncombe County Jail early this morning and is being held there without bond. The accused will make his first court appearance this coming Tuesday. Mike Bigham, Dateline 13 News. When law enforcement finally, so you remember this is all happening in November. So sometime around December the 4th, 1981. So pretty quickly, a couple weeks later, they have a suspect, Stan Stanley Sanders. And uh, law enforcement officers go, they search his residence. And while they're there, they seize jewelry thought to be stolen and some ammunition boxes, which was enough, I guess, to arrest him when he approached the house. So um, the jewelry that was seized during the search was a gold watch and a topaz ring, mm. which belonged to Jackie's mother. And uh, Jackie's mother was able to identify the items and say, yes, these were mine. She said she remembered seeing both pieces of jewelry on her top dresser before she left for work on the night that Jackie was murdered. So somebody had come in the house, taken the ring and the watch, and then had taken the daughter. Well, um, one of the sheriff's deputies, uh, his name was Hobart Brown, testified that he recovered those items while he was searching Stanley Sanders' home. Well, uh, of course, Stanley Sanders is arrested. Um, he waived his rights, agreed to speak with the officers. Um, they'd shown him the watch and the ring. And uh, they said, you know, how long have you had these items? And he says, oh, about a year. And they didn't even mention anything about the murder or the theft. And, um, you know, he basically tells them, hey, I don't understand how you could have had both these items since they belong to the Lee family uh, on November the 10th, 1981. So a couple weeks ago, these weren't yours. They belonged to these other people. And at that point, um, Stanley Sanders denied killing anybody. And that's when um, Deputy Brown left the room during the interrogation. So at this point, um, I don't think anybody's even brought up murder. I was going to say. So Stanley Sanders is there. They're confronting him about the stolen property. And then he's the one that immediately says, I didn't kill nobody. That's exactly why they presented it like that to him. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good move, cops. So Deputy Brown leaves the room, and the conversation continues with Agent Crawford, who was an SBI agent, and the defendant, Stanley Sanders. So the deputy leaves, SBI agent comes in. Of course, the interview room had that two-way glass, so there were lots of law enforcement folks kind of witnessing this, you know, this interview, if you will. And uh, he told Stanley Sanders that the murder victim had been shot, strangled, and had her head bashed in. And, you know, up until this point, they hadn't brought up murder. He's the one that says, I didn't kill anybody. This agent comes in and says, well, this is what happened to this victim. And uh, immediately, Stanley Sanders stated it was an accident, and he didn't mean to do it. Huh. Now, the cops aren't playing. They've already brought the SBI in. I don't know if that's... Typical of a rape murder case, but uh, it sounds like the cops are not playing with this. They're bringing out all the big guns. Well, he says it was an accident. I didn't mean to do it and that he wanted to tell about it. So Sanders said that he'd known the victim and had talked to her on the telephone, that he left his home on November the 10th um, after dark sometime and walked to Jackie Lee's home. He went around to the rear of the house where he watched her through a bedroom window. He came to the front of the house as, um, I guess, she was entering the porch. And uh, she, you know, was like coming out the door, I guess, for some reason. And he grabs her. 
Um, she starts screaming. He forces her around the side of the house to the rear. Uh, Jackie Lee fell, hit her head on the bench. Um, because remember, there was a picnic table and some blood out back. Um, he told her that he needed some money. She said she had her pocketbook and that it was in the car uh, around the front of the house. He forced her to get back up, um, to walk around. They crossed, uh, you know, the yard, went around between several houses, uh, went down another street into a field. So he's not even really going for her purse. Doesn't sound like it. No. Um, he removed his coat. He said they sat down. They began to talk. And then they started to have sex. Oh, yeah. Now, this is his version of the story. That sounds likely. He says that after they had sex, Jackie Lee dressed herself, and they kept talking. And he saw a light on in the house, and he thought a man had been watching them, like, I guess, across from this park or this field where they are. So he decided to put the victim to sleep by using a chokehold, he says he learned in the military, and that he was squeezing her neck until she went limp. And that he realized he choked her too hard, believed she was dead. That he um, thought he saw her move. And that's when he picked up the fence post and hit her in the head. And he wasn't sure whether or not she was dead, so he hit her again. The fuck is wrong with this guy? Yeah. This sounds really accidental. Yeah. I mean, oops. He didn't mean to do it. Oops, I choked her till she fell out and then she twitched and I bashed her with a freaking fence post. Yeah. Right. What a asshole. So Sanders got up to leave, and he saw the moon reflect off of his gun, I guess, which at that point was on the ground. He says that uh, he went back, he picked up the gun, fired one time toward Jackie Lee's chest, and that he had borrowed the gun from an acquaintance, and that after he shot Jackie Lee, he walked from the field over to his girlfriend's house, where he played cards and later went home to bed. <laughs> wow. Okay, so this story is really not adding up. No. It's like... Hey, I grab her. I'm trying to take money from her, but I don't take the money. And then we talk. We have sex. And she has sex with me. And then I see a light on in a house, and I think somebody's watching us, so I'm going to... I should choke her. Choke her, beat her, shoot her. I I mean, this just doesn't matter at all. Right. Well, um, I guess Stanley Sanders did admit to the SBI agent that he had been in Lee's residence before the 10th and had taken the jewelry. So he says that, yeah, I took the gold watch and the ring. So, you know, it's kind of a weird thing because the mom's saying, no, it was taken at this time. And he's like, oh, no, I was in the house before that and took that stuff. Yeah, I'm sure they believe him over the mom. I mean, at this point, the guy's sort of spewing lots of different tales, you know. So during the trial, there were several witnesses who testified that Stanley Sanders was at a Carver Street pool room that night. Well, a psychiatrist, a forensic psychiatrist um, from the Dorothea Dix Hospital, um, did testify and say that he thought that Stanley Sanders was competent competent enough to stand trial and that he had been functioning well enough at the time of Lee's murder to be responsible for these actions. He did testify, though, this doctor, that... um, Stanley Sanders suffered some significant mental illness, uh, possibly a paranoid schizophrenic, and that he diagnosed other identity disorders and antisocial traits, um, and that the guy, uh, Stanley Sanders, had a pretty significant history of psychological uh, problems. Okay. So, um, you know, 
mentally ill guy rapes and murders a girl. So, yeah, yeah, yet again, possibly untreated mental health issue. And, um, you know, a lot of the um, antisocial traits and personality disorders are tied up, you know, with psychopaths as well. Yeah, that's true. So, um, you know, maybe he's just a fucking psychopath. So, in 1982, an all-white jury convicted Sanders and sentenced him to death. Um, is Sanders black? Yes. Ah. Uh, I should mention that. Yes. Well, he appealed um, this sentence, won a new trial, but then a second all-white jury put him back on death row. So, because the U.S. Supreme Court threw out North Carolina's death penalty law, Sanders won a new sentencing hearing. So, the guy ended up going... I guess, uh, to trial like four different times over this. Wow. And the state paid the cost each time to make, keep him in jail. So initially, um, you know, back in 1981, he denied the crime and for 28 years said he didn't have any part of it. He was innocent. He was being framed. And there was actually kind of a, a coalition, if you will, of people over in like Hendersonville, Brevard area who were attending all of his trials, supporting him, claiming that he was innocent, he'd been framed, um, it was an issue of racism, you know, and not to say that those things don't happen. Right. So when he finally went back to court, um, which I guess would have been like the fourth time or so after all of these trials and retrials and appeals, he kind of abandoned that denial And he pleaded guilty to kidnapping a 17-year-old girl, 1981, and said that, yes, he indeed raped and murdered her. So he was sentenced to death again for the rape and first-degree murder of Jackie Lee. And, uh, yeah, so this story just kind of keeps going. Now, did he have a motive—is there some type of motivation for him to finally confess to it? Like a lighter sentence, sentence or something like that? Yeah, I mean, I don't think so. He um, went to Central Prison in Raleigh, um, began serving that life sentence, or at least 25 years, while he awaited a fourth sentencing trial. So, you know, he's waiting, he's waiting, he's in prison, and, um, you know, he's probably not going to get out, so... No, but it sounds like he moved from death row to life. Yeah. So I guess that maybe is his motivation there. So, I guess during this um, last trial, because, you know, again, it was like he was sentenced to death, appealed that, sentenced to death row again. Then, you know, there's some new law that comes out. He appeals that sentence and then ends up, you know, having two two more trials, I guess. And he does get life. But, uh, you know, at this time, it's much later, they decided to do some DNA testing of a rape kit just to make certain they had the right man. Right. And as I said, there was like a whole kind of coalition of folks who were rallying um, behind him, supporting him, saying, oh, he's innocent. You know, he didn't do this. And uh, the DNA test confirmed that he was the perpetrator. So he did rape her and uh, murder her. So he was using those people as well. Yeah. Because he doesn't care about anybody else. <laughs> I guess It doesn't not. seem... But, yeah. you know, I guess from their um, their point of view, you know, he's had multiple trials. You know, that always raises suspicion about the validity of a case. 
uh, in my mind anyway. Um, and, uh, you know, black, all white jury, you know, back in 81, things were different. And, uh, so, you know, I guess you can't blame those people for believing that. Right. Him keeping on saying he's innocent all these years. Well, so, so they I have mean, changed the law. So now I guess they've moved it from the death penalty to life in prison. Um, but, you know, I guess North Carolina's execution laws have gotten a little murky. And some people think that, you know, we may not be executing anybody in the state like ever again. Really? Yeah. Hmm. I mean, we got a lot of people sitting on death row and. Nobody, but, you know, nobody dying. What does that do for families who. The perpetrator was sentenced to death for killing her loved one. Yeah, I don't know. You know, I mean, I see moving forward, hey, this is the new, you know, this is how we're conducting ourselves now. But, you know, should something like that be retroactive? You know, I mean, I know it's a touchy subject, capital punishment. But um, I, I personally think if you're going to have a death penalty, it should be carried out. And, you know, not. Appeal 15 or 20 years later. And appeal after appeal. After yeah, like Gacy lived longer on death row than some of his victims lived on this earth. Right. You know, things like that. So, you know, if you, it's supposed to be a, the, the proponents say it's a deterrent for these very violent crimes. But if I, the perpetrator, can go make myself a life in prison, and these people tend to be crazy, psychopaths, some mentally ill, you know, when they commit their crimes, which is sad, untreated mental illness. But they're antisocial anyway. So, you know, being in prison and, like, making a life for yourself in there with a bunch of other tough nuts is not the worst case scenario for some of these guys. But I bet, by God, if you had a appeals process streamlined but fair and then with DNA on top of that, sometimes proven beyond the shadow of a doubt, and your ass was dead eight months, a year later, Some of these people may think twice about these horrific crimes. You think so? Or not. But, you know, what do I know? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you can find us on Spreaker, Patreon. We're on Facebook, Twitter. You can also listen to us on SoundCloud. And uh, we're on CastBox and Spotify. So um, keyword search Mountain Murders. We have our new website. That's right. We do. We have a new website, mountainmurders.com. And Just come on over direct and to the check source, it out, right? Yes. Straight to it. And we're going to have a lot of uh, extra content and stuff forthcoming there. 